1: Hey there, it's Amanda Lamb, host of Follow the Truth. I'm here to introduce you to my latest podcast, What Remains. It's produced by the same team here at WREL Studios. And it's also about crime and bringing truth to light. In What Remains, I explore how advances in DNA profiling, forensic anthropology, and genealogy come together to solve the oldest cold cases, sometimes using remains that have gone unidentified for decades. What remains is true crime meets forensic science with one goal in mind, bringing resolution to families who have waited so long for answers. If you like episode one and want to listen to all episodes ad-free right now, you can on Wondery Plus. Or you can listen to Episodes 1 and 2 now in your favorite podcast app. We'll publish another one each week. Here's Episode 1. This podcast contains frank descriptions of human remains and physical violence. Listener discretion is advised. On a cool, cloudy afternoon in 1999, a soldier stationed at Fort Bragg Army Base was driving down a busy road in Fayetteville, North Carolina, when he made a gruesome discovery.
2: March 3rd in 1999, and called 911, of course. The sheriff's office responded out to the scene where they saw uh, what at first they thought was a uh, baby doll, but of course they discovered was in fact a newborn baby, still had the umbilical cord attached and everything in the trash bag.
1: Lieutenant Adam Farnham says the baby boy was dead. The usually stoic investigators were horrified by the discovery. And even more so when the autopsy revealed that the newborn had died from blunt force trauma. He was still alive when he was thrown from a moving vehicle.
2: The baby had uh, severe blunt force trauma, and that was what the baby died of. It was emotional for every officer that has dealt with it, for every homicide officer, for the road officers, for every detective that has dealt with it.
1: While the detectives were trying to sort out what happened to the boy, they gave him a name. Something to help get the public's attention and in turn, generate leads. The name symbolized something very important to the officers who were investigating the case.
2: The sheriff's office named the baby, Baby Michael, because Michael is the patron saint of law enforcement.
1: Detectives went door-to-door, canvassing the neighborhood for leads. They set up roadblocks and handed out flyers with a picture of the dead infant. The flyer is pretty disturbing. But it was meant to be disturbing. It was meant to shake things up, to get someone to talk, and to capture media attention. I remember when they
0: put this flyer out, too. It had a picture of the dead baby on it. Just too gross for me to really put on the air. But also at the top here, it says, who killed baby Michael? And tonight, Sheriff... We had
2: interviewed and taken uh, voluntary DNA samples from countless people, countless women trying to... Anytime we got any kind of lead, all of the leads had been exhausted.
1: Everything they tried led to a dead end. It officially became a cold case.
0: Investigating old murders becomes more difficult with every passing day. The newborn baby boy was found dead last year on the side of this Grays Creek Road. Investigators are hoping new technology will lead to suspects.
1: Every year on the anniversary of the newborn's death, the sheriff's office held a memorial at Baby Michael's gravesite. Year after year, they laid flowers, wreaths, Little Stuffed Animals.
0: A solemn headstone with a simple message. We love you. This cemetery next to Harris Chapel Free Will Holiness Church is where baby Michael was buried 21 years ago. Today, share in his right place the breathe:
1: In the U.S., there are around 100,000 active missing persons cases at any given time, and more than 40,000 sets of remains that have been discovered but have not been identified remains like baby Michael's. Think about that for a moment. Unidentified people, discarded, forgotten about. People who had lives, and now what's left of them sits in a box somewhere, waiting for someone, a scientist, an investigator, a loved one, to make a connection, to identify them, and give them back some of their dignity, even in death. As a television reporter, I've been covering crime for 30 years, and I've shared stories from pieces of lots of these kinds of cases, mostly just big moments, the discovery of a body or a big break, occasionally an arrest. But when I heard this 40,000 number, it was hard to believe there were so many unidentified people With all of the advancements in technology and science today, how is this even possible? So I wanted to dig in and understand what it takes to go from a set of unidentified bones to a name. I wanted to learn about the tools and the people who try to reach beyond the grave and find answers. Why do they do it? What drives them? How do they do it? And what happens when others get in their way? When some people intentionally try to hide the truth. From WREL Studios, this is What Remains, where we'll dig into the stories of connecting unidentified human remains to the missing and the murdered. I'm Amanda Lamb. Would it be fair to say that even though it was a quote-unquote cold case, it was always being investigated and always on the minds of the investigators who had touched this case?
2: Yes. uh, uh, Although it's cold, it's never really cold because we never forgot it.
1: In 2019, Lieutenant Adam Farnham was the latest investigator to inherit the Baby Michael case. He's a tall, burly guy with a friendly face. He looks like he could probably talk his way into just about any suspect's house. He works in the homicide unit with the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office in North Carolina. He's one of dozens of investigators over the years who have touched this case and been touched by it.
2: When I compiled this file together, there were thousands and thousands of pages, Um, just hundreds of interviews uh, that were conducted Not just by myself, but uh, through all of the investigators over the years. Uh, There have been hundreds of interviews that have been done.
1: In October of 2019, 20 years after that roadside discovery, investigators actually got a little break. A small crack, but the first in more than two decades.
2: Money. Money was the break. And what I mean by that is we received money through our county government. In order for us to send samples that were collected uh, from the original day, uh, we were able to send samples to a private lab.
1: Over the years, investigators zeroed in on several women in the area who had given birth around the time baby Michael was born. They questioned more than 50 mothers and got voluntary DNA samples from them. But none of these leads panned out. What investigators had never done, though, was to see if there was a potential DNA match on these massive online DNA databases that now exist. While baby Michael's remains were buried, samples of his DNA from the placenta and the umbilical cord were stored by the state and preserved as evidence because the case remained open. Some of those samples were sent to a lab in Virginia for DNA analysis. Then, scientists created a genetic profile of the baby that they could try and use to match with potential family members as distant as they may be.
2: We were able to do genealogy testing, and through that genealogy testing, uh, we were able to do uh, essentially a family tree of baby Michael.
1: And that's what's called forensic genealogy. Correct. Where you take that sample, you try to connect it to people And then you keep going until you find somebody who knows something in this family tree.
2: Correct. A second cousin or a third cousin uh, down the line.
1: They started getting results in November of 2019. But the names they got back were very distant relatives of baby Michael. Too distant. Still, the lab kept processing the DNA, doing more in-depth testing, and running it against any new samples. Then in February of 2020, they got a result back that showed someone very, very close to baby Michael on the family tree. It was a big break and they ran with it. They interviewed that person and others close to Michael on the family tree. The circle was closing and they were getting closer and closer to baby Michael's mother. Then, on February 20th, 2020, 21 years after baby Michael was found, Lieutenant Farnham and another detective drove 200 miles west from Fayetteville to a small town in the mountains of North Carolina to the home of a woman they believed would provide the ultimate answers in the case.
2: We had received information through our interviews that that was the mother, and uh, I went to interview her with one of my detectives up in uh, Morganton, that's a few hours away up in the mountains.
1: The DNA testing her age and where she lived at the time baby Michael died, about three miles from where he was found. Farnham knew all this, and he knew this interview was make or break. Lieutenant Farnham revealed that the woman admitted to him that she was baby Michael's mother.
2: Deborah Riddle Jackson O'Connor is her name. It's O'Connor now. It wasn't in 1999.
1: When they told her she was under arrest, she didn't cry. She just got up and walked out of the house with the detectives, almost like she was expecting this day to come. When I asked Lieutenant Farnham what that moment was like, he sits quietly for a few seconds, looks away, and then turns back to me, choosing his words carefully.
2: It was a uh, experience.
3: You're looking at the woman investigators say left a newborn baby's body by the side of the road in Cumberland County in 1999.
1: WREL Fayetteville reporter Gilbert Bays has been covering developments in this case for two decades. On
0: many occasions, I've covered the graveside ceremonies that they've had. 54-year-old Deborah O'Connor stood quietly in front of District Court Judge David Hasty as he read the charge against her. First-degree murder in the death of her one-day-old baby boy, authorities named Baby Michael.
1: In a Facebook post she made in November of 2019, three months before police showed up at her front door, Deborah foreshadowed the fact that investigators would eventually circle the wagons around her, saying, You can't hide behind a religious mask forever. Sooner or later, the mask will slip and your true face will be known. Deborah grew up in the Fayetteville area and has two adult sons from her previous marriage and two grandsons. She was in her 30s when baby Michael was born. Who the infant's father was remains a mystery. She and her current husband, Charles, had only been together for 10 years when she was arrested. He was as surprised as anyone by the accusations against her. Charles O'Connor told the media... He had no idea that his wife had given birth to a baby in 1999 before they met. He spoke to television station WCNC in Charlotte and said he didn't think Deborah was capable of murder, that this appeared to be a witch hunt. I cannot stand that mugshot that they've got of her. I can't stand to
2: look at it. Such let's
1: talk to sort of Debbie, I do. Investigators tell us Deborah somehow managed to hide the pregnancy from her family and friends, and then kept the secret for 21 years. Three years after investigators say she killed baby Michael, North Carolina passed a law that allows a parent to give up a newborn in the first seven days of its life to a responsible person. With no legal repercussions, a healthcare worker, a police officer, a social worker, no questions asked. The goal of the safe surrender law is to prevent infant homicides like this one. Of course, no one knows for sure if this law would have protected baby Michael. There aren't numbers kept about how many babies have been surrendered since it went into effect, but advocates say it's crucial for mothers who feel like they have no other options.
0: This event, what happened...
1: After effect, Deborah O'Connor's was, arrest, was, the was, Cumberland was, County Sheriff uh, Ennis Wright you know, called was, a press conference to announce this 21-year-old case that, had been solved.
0: You know, this person had options. You had, had a choice. We hope that sometimes you know, that you would make the right choice. But in this uh, situation, uh, the right choice wasn't made or wasn't made. Now it's up to District Attorney Billy West to seek justice for baby Michael. Yeah, well, first I want to thank the Sheriff's Office for their hard work. Uh, I was a young assistant DA when this case was being investigated. I know it was very important uh, to former sheriff, very important to my predecessor. As far as the prosecution of the case, uh, we do have an, an admission in the case and we do have the DNA. So, uh, that in and of itself is, is quite a bit of evidence. You know, it's a first-degree murder case, so she is uh, eligible for life in prison, possibly the death penalty if there's any aggravators uh, present. But currently she's charged with first-degree murder, which in North Carolina, the two punishments prescribed are either life in prison uh, or the death penalty. The sheriff says even though they believe they solved this case, they plan to continue holding those graveside memorials, especially this year, because this year, baby Michael would have been 21 years old. It really bothers me. I take it personal, when there's so many avenues that we have out there, so many avenues uh, that this young lady could have used during that time.
1: In August of 2021, 22 years after baby Michael was found discarded on the side of the road, Debra walked into a Cumberland County courtroom, her face obscured by a mask due to the COVID pandemic. She wore a baggy tan jail uniform and handcuffs around her wrists. Her attorney, Bernard Conlin, pulled out her chair so that she could sit down at the defendant's table. Debra pled guilty to the second-degree murder of her infant son. Conlin told the court, we would never understand why his client did this. But he did add some context, saying that Deborah had hidden the pregnancy from her family because her mother didn't approve of her having children out of wedlock with multiple men. He told the judge that on the day in question, she panicked. Conlon later described Deborah driving around, looking for a place to leave the infant. She went to the fire department, but her brother was there. Conlin said she went by her church, but people there knew her mother, and Deborah ended up making the, quote, poor decision to leave baby Michael on the side of the road. Deborah showed remorse for what she did. Calmly, she told the court, I deeply regret that this has happened. If I could do it over again, it would end up so differently. She also asked for mercy saying, I've asked God for forgiveness. I've asked Michael for forgiveness. I asked my family for forgiveness for the embarrassment and the anguish that this has caused them. But most of all, I asked the community for forgiveness. If they could look at my heart and see that I never wanted this to happen, I was in a bad situation. And if I could do it over again, this would not have happened and we would not be here in these proceedings. The judge sentenced Deborah to a minimum of 12 years in prison and a maximum of 15 years and two months, minus the 18 months she had already served in jail awaiting her hearing. Deborah Riddle O'Connor is currently doing her time at the North Carolina Correctional Institution for Women in Raleigh. She is scheduled to be released in February of 2032. For Lieutenant Farnham and all the investigators who came before him, this was personal. Solving this case was something they had to do. They never gave up on baby Michael. But so many, like you said, so many people before you had worked on it. I mean, what was it like to solve it? to get to that point. How did that feel? Gratifying. Lieutenant Farnham gets choked up. His eyes fill with tears. Covering crime for decades, I'd never quite seen a seasoned investigator like this before. He quickly regains his composure and wipes his eyes with the backs of his hands. He explains that for him justice in a case like this doesn't bring the so often-touted word closure to the loved ones of the victim.
2: Yeah, Resolution is a good word because, um, especially in homicide, uh, what people want is their family member back, and I can never give that. Um, however, being able to give someone the answer.
1: I knew about this case from colleagues who'd followed it all these years from the discovery of the unidentified infant to the criminal charges. And this kind of story, in the unidentified person world, it's a success, but it's rare. More often, the cases I've covered are like that of Ebony Spears. Someone goes missing, there are massive searches, and then the trail goes cold. I know
3: a lot of people say she's missing, but... Me, I mean, my version of it is not only dismissing, she seems to have
1: vanished. What happened to Ebony after the break? 31 year old Ebony Spears disappeared from her home in Wilmington, North Carolina, in January of 2016. Since then, her mother, Harriet Rivers, has been filled with questions.
3: I just want to know if Ebony alive somewhere and, and being held captive and can't come home, I would like to know that. Is she okay? Where is she? You know what I'm saying? We we always gonna have that in the back of our head.
1: Days turned into weeks, months, and then years. No word from Ebony.
3: Something has happened to her and nobody is speaking out. Ebony just wouldn't have walked away from home.
1: Ebony Spears was diagnosed with lupus in 2016.
3: That was really a blow for her when they told her she had lupus, yeah.
1: Her mom says Ebony was overwhelmed emotionally and physically by the diagnosis. So she asked her parents to take care of her 13-year-old daughter Anaya for just a few days. They were more than happy to help. They adored Anaya and their daughter and would do anything to support them. Another thing getting Ebony down, she had lost her job as a certified nursing assistant because she took too many sick days. Her mom, Harriet Rivers, was extremely worried about her daughter's state of mind.
3: That caused them great depression and just 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 turned her, her world, her life upside down. That being not being able, number one, to take care of Naya, number two, half the time not being able to and take care of pretty much herself. It was just like we're running back and forth, making sure she was okay mentally, physically.
1: When you look at a photograph of Ebony, it's like looking straight into the sun. Her smile is big and warm. In some photos, she sports a brunette bob with subtle blonde highlights, which only add to her glow. But we all know people can look one way in a photo and still be hurting inside. Harriet said Ebony had her struggles, but that she was smart and kind and desperately needed her family's support in that moment.
3: To me, she was a good daughter, loving mother. She loved her family. And Ebony was, actually, she she was a good person.
1: On Tuesday, January 12th, 2016, Harriet spent time at her daughter's apartment, helping her clean out and organize. She felt like this was something tangible she could do to help Ebony get back on track, to figure out how to resume some semblance of normalcy in her life, despite her health issues. Harriet said at the time, Ebony seemed fine. But two days later, everything went downhill.
3: It was just like everything just went rock bottom. Um, because I got a call from her boyfriend at that time, and he was saying that Ebony was um, acting erratic, driving, driving over, over the speed limit, and so that was the day that we um, she ended up at the police department, the Wilmington Police Department.
1: Ebony had gone to the precinct on her own accord looking for some help. She didn't know where to turn, but she felt like this was a good place to start. They called EMS because Ebony was complaining of not feeling well. Her parents met her there and were hoping the police would recommend that Ebony be admitted to the hospital for a mental health evaluation. But officers who attended to her said she seemed fine, lucid, normal, not a danger to herself or anyone else.
3: She wasn't acting right and we wanted her to get some help. And, um... So they, like I said, they asked all the questions and they say, since they didn't find nothing wrong with her. She asked the questions correctly, whatever, blah, blah, blah. They can't make her go.
1: Despite her parents' concerns, they let her go home. The very next day, on Friday, January 15th, Ebony returned to the Wilmington Police Department asking if she could use their phone, saying her phone had lost its charge. Her parents think this was yet another cry for help. According to witnesses, she stayed there in the lobby of the police department for a few minutes, acting anxious.
3: At one point, then she went back to the phone and then they finally realized that the phone wasn't working. But if they, So they say she got a little agitated and she walked out the door. And that was the last time they seen
1: her. In the initial reports of Ebony's disappearance, this was listed as the last confirmed sighting of her. And why do you think she went to the police department these two times?
3: I have no clue because he kept telling us that she felt like someone was following her.
1: After the police got involved in the days following Ebony's disappearance, investigators learned that someone saw her after the scene at the police department. A man says that night he was visiting a friend in the apartment complex where Ebony lived. He says around 9.45, she stepped out of her apartment and asked him for a cigarette. He said he didn't have one to give her, and she told him she was going to walk to the store and buy some. Then, about
3: 1 o'clock that morning, her boyfriend actually, he called her daughter's phone and asked was her mom to my house, so she puts me on the phone and he's saying, hey, I've been here since 11 o'clock and Ebony's not home. Is she with you?
1: Right away, Harriet is very concerned. The boyfriend says he found the apartment locked with Ebony's purse inside, but that she's nowhere to be found. Why would she leave without her purse, her mother thinks?
3: And... That, to me, my thing is, is not, make, it's not making
1: sense. After Ebony disappeared, they got connected with an advocacy group that helps families when someone goes missing. You'll hear much more about the Q Center for Missing Persons in a later episode. The Q Center organized searches, hosted flyers everywhere with Ebony's picture on them, and hosted rallies. The Wilmington police searched the city on horseback, checking alleys and spots their patrol cars couldn't go. They used dogs. They even got the FBI involved when investigators thought she might be the target of a man in Georgia that she used to live with and owed money to. There was a reward offered for information about her whereabouts. A local funeral home even donated money to pay for billboards with Ebony's picture on them. The search went on for years, As recently as February of 2022, the Q Center and the Wilmington Police held another community search for Ebony. It lasted two days. It involved dozens of volunteers, search dogs, and searchers on horseback. They returned to places Ebony was last seen, like the area around the police department and her apartment. Still, nothing. Not a trace of her. I mean, how do you, as a parent, just get up and go through every day, not knowing?
3: I do it, like I said, because of Anaya, and I have two other small kids that rely on me. And basically, I think I'm the strong tower of the family, so they, I, I have to just keep on going. There are days when I wish I didn't have to. I wish I wasn't be, I wasn't dependent on them, but I can just stay in the bed with my head
1: covered up and. Just not do nothing, just not think, but I'm still going. Anaya, Ebony's daughter, is in college. Her family wants resolution for themselves. But more importantly, they want resolution for Anaya. She's thrived despite the disappearance of her mom when she was just 13. But Harriet believes her granddaughter deserves to know the truth, needs to know the truth in order to get on with her life in a productive way. And she says that's what Anaya wants, too. She
3: is going into young womanhood without knowing where her mom is and her mom has been missed, probably, all her teenage years, just about.
1: At this point, the most important thing to Harriet is knowing what happened to Ebony.
3: And I know someone's out there who knows what's happened to Ebony, and I feel it. And I just know someone knows.
1: As a mother, I mean, that could mean a lot to be able to have that answer, I would think.
3: Yeah. We just want to know. If you, the individual, caused it, just, just come forward. And if you are not the individual that caused it and you know what happened to Emmy, come forward. That's all we're
1: asking. All we're asking... That's all most people in Harriet's situation are asking. After years of waiting and wondering, they just want to know what happened to their loved one. As a parent, it's an unimaginable situation to be in. I couldn't picture myself getting out of bed. But somehow, Harriet manages to put one foot in front of another, day after day, hoping for a miracle. So how do cases go from where Ebony's is, a missing person case with no clues to go on, to a solved case, like the case of baby Michael? It's like two sides of the same coin, an unidentified person on one side, a missing person on the other. Somehow they need to be connected and I've gotten sucked into trying to figure out how those two sides meet. How do you put together a story of who a person is And what happened to them from a single piece of bone? How do you search for someone when there's no leads to follow? And why are there so many cases yet to be solved? I'm going to take you along with me as I try to answer some of these questions. In this show, we'll meet the scientists and investigators using the most cutting edge tools and technology to find answers for families like Ebony's. We're going to walk through a body farm, take a class in forensic art, track the impact of DNA testing, and put bones under a microscope. And we'll meet the people behind all of this work, advocates for those whose voices have been cut short, and in some cases, entirely forgotten. It's not an easy journey, But when you think about people like Harriet, a mother who has lost a child, you realize that every step is worth taking. On the next episode of What Remains, pieces of a woman's body are found in a creek. But how did she die? The way
3: that they're able to sort of find the body is when the uh, body is placed in water and starts to decompose, the fat sort of float on top of the water. And so it's just a horrific place for her body to have been left.
1: This episode of What Remains was written by me, Amanda Lamb, and produced by Anita Normanly. Our executive producer was Wilson Sayre, who also edited the episode with mixing from Mark Maximov. What Remains was directed by Shelly Leslie. Thanks so much for listening. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you want to binge What Remains ad-free, you can subscribe to Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. Episodes are also available on Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Another way you can support our show is by filling out a survey at wondery.com slash survey. you can score with the Jim Allen group at the jagadvantage.com equal housing opportunity
2: save big on brunch for mom all in the Kroger app get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious coca-cola pepsi or 7-up all with your card shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today 18
0: plus.